chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. That's Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. And this is the word of God. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Christ's appearance before the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16 was very revealing. For it not only portrayed Christ in his post-resurrection glory, but also in his ministry as the great high priest over his churches. For in Revelation 1, Christ stands in the midst of his churches, trimming their lamps and assuring them of his presence. In addition, Christ stands fully arrayed in the garments of the high priest, reminding his churches that he is the one who covers them with, right, with his righteousness. And he is the one who continually intercedes for them. Oh, let us recognize that we are kept safe because of him who walks in our midst and prays on our behalf. Now please find the part in your bulletin this morning entitled, We Confess Our Faith. And notice that we are currently working through the section of the Baptist Catechism having to do with God's moral law. I will read aloud the, question, the catechism questions, and then we together, as a congregation, will read aloud the answers. Question 80. What is forbidding, forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Answer. The Eighth Commandment forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. Question 81. What is the ninth commandment? Answer. The ninth commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor.
We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews and the fifth chapter. The book of Hebrews and the fifth chapter. And I'll be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 1 through 10. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I encourage you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for this wonderful opportunity in your kind providence to gather in the name of your Son to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we would ask now this morning for the work of your Holy Spirit as we turn our attention to your word, that he would be our guide that he would be our teacher, that he would show us wondrous things from your word, that he would help us to understand this text, and that he would help us to apply it in such a way that our minds are renewed, our conduct is transformed, and our desire is to serve you and to give you our entire hearts and lives for your glory. So we ask now for your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Brethren, as Christians, we are called to hold fast to our confession or to that which we have openly confessed about Jesus Christ. And a part of our confession is our confidence in the priesthood of Christ and our assurance that he, as our priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. For of all the ministries that Christ performs for us and to us, as our great mediator, Christ's role as priest is addressed the most throughout the book of Hebrews. And this is because it is in his role as our high priest that Christ most closely identifies with us as those who are in need of his ministry. In fact, back in Hebrews chapter 2, when the priesthood of Christ was first explained within the context of this book, the writer declared that since you and I are flesh and blood, 
Jesus likewise partook of the very same things. In other words, he took upon himself a human nature, a body of flesh and blood, according to Hebrews 2.14, so that he might be made like us in every respect, so that he, Jesus, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And so it is in his preparation and work as priest that Jesus is most qualified to minister to us as needy sinners. It is in his preparation and work as our priest that Jesus is most sympathetic to us in our weaknesses. It is in his preparation and work as priest that Jesus is most active for us, interceding for us before the throne of God. Therefore, it is not surprising that we find so many references to Jesus as our high priest throughout the book of Hebrews. For without the priesthood of Jesus, you and I would be without the benefits of his mercy. Without the priesthood of Jesus, you and I would be without the benefits of his sympathy. Without the priesthood of Jesus, we would be without his constant intercession for us. And needless to say, you and I could not stand spiritually, nor could we hold fast to our confession if it were not for the priesthood of Jesus Christ for us. We need what Christ as our high priest does for us, even now as he is seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. And yet, what do we know about Christ's high priesthood? What do we know about the office of the high priest? Or about Christ's calling to be our high priest under the covenant of redemption that he made with the Father to be our mediator? What do we know about Christ's preparation for the priesthood or the way that Christ fulfilled his office in a manner that no other high priest could? Well, these are questions that need to be answered, and our text this morning will begin to answer them for us. For here in Hebrews chapter 5, and verses 1 through 10, and especially verses 1 through 4, which will be our focus this morning, the writer gives us some helpful background on the selection of the high priest and what his calling and work actually consists of. And then he points us to Jesus, who's uniquely qualified for this position in a way that no one else could have been, and who fulfilled his calling in such a manner and with such unwavering obedience that the Father was pleased with him, God the Father's name was exalted, and the people for whom Christ was the priest were blessed, not only in terms of their sympathy for him, or his sympathy for them, but the eternal salvation that he purchased for them as well. And so this particular text, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, helps us to appreciate the true nature and necessity of the priesthood. The true nature and necessity of the priesthood. 
and why Jesus fulfilled this role so perfectly and so faithfully. And as we consider this text, especially in my exposition next week, Lord willing, we're going to focus more on what the writer reveals about Jesus Christ. However, this morning, in following our text, in the first four verses especially, I want us to lay some essential groundwork on the high priest's role and responsibility. The high priest's role and responsibility. And I want to take advantage of this providential opportunity to preach this morning about the types of leaders that the high priests were called and appointed to be. The types of leaders that the high priests were called and appointed to be. For as you know, we are starting the process of determining as a church what men we have among us who have real leadership potential. And we're beginning this process in hopes of being able to identify and call some elders in the near future. And this morning, I want to draw out some observations and principles from these first four verses that I trust will be helpful to us as we consider what leaders in the church should be. We're going to consider what the high priests were called to be and what Christ himself proved to be. And so let's begin by considering here in verses 1 through 4 the, the calling and the character of a high priest. The calling and the character of the high priest or a high priest who has the blessing of God and who is in himself a blessing to God's people in return. And, and what does the writer reveal to us about the high priest's calling? Well, the writer reveals here first in verse 1 that the high priest was both chosen and appointed by God. The high priest was both chosen and appointed by God. Or in other words, he did not become a high priest because he simply volunteered to be one. Or because he decided on his own that he would place himself within that role of service within God's covenant community. But rather in the Old Testament economy, the decision or the choice as to whether a man could serve as a high priest or not had already been determined by God himself, who had declared that the only ones who could serve as priests within the covenant community of Israel had to come first from the household or the priestly line of Aaron from the household or the priestly line of Aaron. In fact, any man who dared to assume for himself the role of a high priest who was not of the priestly line of Aaron was rejected and judged severely. Because God did not leave it to the discretion of individual men. God did not leave it even to the people of God operating independently to determine who they wanted to be their high priest. But rather God provided very specific instructions 
as to what physical family these men were to come from and how these men were to be selected. And this simply points to the fact that God exercised his own sovereign prerogative in choosing those men whom he would have to represent him and to lead his people. And of course, this same principle applied in the choosing of Jesus Christ as our mediator as well, which we'll see next week especially. And it also applies, although to a lesser degree, to the selection of men in leading God's people today. For as you are well aware, there is not a formal priestly line within the church of Jesus Christ today. Nevertheless, God still chooses men, those men who will represent him and serve him and his people in the church. For those men who serve in the church of Jesus Christ must be chosen and appointed. Those who serve Jesus Christ in his church must have a strong sense that they have been chosen for their tasks by God. In fact, if they do not possess that sense, then they should not seek an office of leadership at all. For it is very dangerous to assume an office in the household of God to which you are not called. To assume an office in the household of God to which you have not been appointed. Likewise, when we, as the people of God, are exercising our right to vote for leaders within the church, we should only vote for those men who give evidence that they have been chosen by God by the way that they fear God and the way that they care for God's people. For just as it is wrong for a man to enter into an office in the church that he's not been chosen for, it is equally wrong for a church to choose a man to serve as one of its leaders or one of its elders or one of its deacons who does not have the calling or the qualifications necessary to fulfill that role. Because even in the church today, where there is no formal priesthood like there was in ancient Israel, God still calls upon us to recognize the choice of who he has selected and who is his choice. And our responsibility is to simply follow whatever guidelines the Lord gives us in discerning how to recognize his choice and calling upon men. But again, in the case of the high priest in Israel, it was a man's family line that primarily determined whether he would serve in that capacity. And no man could claim or assume the position of a high priest without Israel's formal recognition and verification of which family he came from. And again, this is all important. It may not seem relevant or important to us now, but it will be very relevant when we consider the Lord Jesus Christ next week and we consider where he came from and his lineage, so to speak. Then secondly, 
not only was a man who was called to serve as a high priest chosen by God, but he was also appointed by God. And there is a difference between being chosen and appointed. And for those of you who are interested in leadership, we'll be talking more about that in the future. Meaning that he was officially set apart and recognized as one who was given specific tasks to accomplish in the service of God and in the service of his brethren. And what tasks were appointed for those who were called to serve as high priests in Israel? Well, the writer informs us here in verse 1 that with respect to his appointment, the high priest served two primary duties. One duty in relation to God and the other in relation to his brethren. One duty in relation to God, the other in relation to his brethren. In fact, in a very real sense, the high priest served as a mediator, standing between God on one hand and his brethren on the other hand. And in doing so, he not only ministered to both, but he endeavored to bring them closer together. That's why, for example, Paul says we have the ministry of reconciliation and that we are bringing God and men closer together by the work we're called to do. And what specifically was he, the high priest, appointed to do? Well, the writer says here that he was first appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To act on behalf of men in relation to God, meaning that as he ministered to his brethren, out of whom he himself had been called, the high priest was appointed to lead them to God. The high priest was appointed to draw men out of their waywardness and out of themselves into a vital relationship with the living God. In fact, this was the high priest's primary obligation to his people. Primary obligation to his people. If he failed to do this, if he failed to direct their attention and to stir up their devotion to the true God that they served, then the high priest failed in his mission to them. For his assignment was not merely to be busy before the people. His assignment was not merely to be active all the time in the things of God, but he was called to minister among the people continually, directing them constantly directing them faithfully and by his own faithful example to seek after God and to obey him. To seek after God and to obey him. And of course, there is a sense in which those who are called and appointed to serve God's people in the church today have this same primary appointment. For as leaders in the church today, we are not called to merely oversee the activities of God's household. For example, you did not call me as your pastor simply to maintain the lawn, to make sure that the building is clean, to make sure that we're organized so that we can have a public meeting every week. But you called me, whether you were aware of it or not, whether you were fully conscious of this responsibility or not, to point you, to point you as the people of God to your responsibility to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, as Deuteronomy 6, 
verses 4 and 5 states. And in choosing a man for leadership in the church today, we must only choose men. We must only appoint men who take this responsibility seriously. We must only appoint men who are deeply concerned about our relationship, our being the people of God here, our relationship with God above all other things. For what you need as the people of God, what I need as a member of God's community as well, are Christian leaders and ministers who have these things, spiritual things, as their chief and primary concerns. And as we give thought to what leaders God would have us to have here at the church in the future, and we'll be talking more about leadership on purpose, we should be giving consideration to this fact. Are these men that we are considering deeply serious about spiritual matters and deeply committed about directing us, the people of God, to God. Then not only were the high priests to act and to serve on the people's behalf in relation to God, but they were also to offer to God that which most benefited the people that they were called and appointed to serve. In fact, we are told here in verse 1 that the high priests were called under the Old Testament economy to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Notice that to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins because they were the only ones at that time who were authorized to do that. And their service ultimately pointed to the work of Jesus Christ, as you know. Pastors and elders are not offering sacrifices for sin today, but we are to be pointing you constantly to the one who made the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, We'll talk more about this as we move through these first 10 verses of Hebrews 5 together. However, again, the point I want to stress here this morning is that while our leaders within the church today are, are not called to offer the same gifts and sacrifices as the Old Testament priests were, they are to be men who can point us to the one who can forgive our sins. They are to be men who know and have a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and who are capable of helping us grow in our relationship with him. Not only this, but there is one priestly work, if I may call it that in this context this morning, that every Christian leader, every pastor, every elder should engage in for God's people on a continual basis, and that is the ministry of intercessory prayer. The ministry of intercessory prayer. For just as Jesus, our great high priest, ever lives to pray for us and to acquire for us the blessings that he has already purchased for us, so we... So any man who is called into leadership in the church of Jesus Christ should be continually praying for God's people. Continually praying for you and for me and for God's assembly. That God would be kind and merciful to us 
and that God would give us the assurance of sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. In fact, we're going to talk about this more in the weeks ahead, but I strongly urge you to begin considering this now as a congregation, that you should only choose and appoint men as leaders, as elders, who pray for you, who pray for you, who intercede for you on a regular basis. And if you don't know if men pray for you on a regular basis, then ask them. Ask them if they do. In fact, we had a very profitable conversation yesterday morning in our men's meeting about being people of integrity when it comes to praying for one another and that we need to pray for one another. We need to be committed to do that and not neglect that responsibility. But also, when we tell other people in the course of our conversation with them, for example, on this Lord's Day, that we're praying for them, then we need to have enough integrity to follow through on that promise and to pray for them. You need men who pray for you, who intercede for you on a regular basis. Because a leader over God's people who does not pray for God's people cannot possibly be the influence that it, he needs to be. He cannot possibly be the influence that he needs to be when it comes to drawing you to God and seeking God's favor for you unless he is praying. So first we see here in verses 1 and 2, the high priest calling. And now it consisted of God's selection and appointment upon his life. And now lastly, in the time that we have remaining, I want us to consider the high priest's character. The high priest's character or the type of character that a high priest was called and required to have if he truly wanted to be faithful and effective both in his ministry to his brethren and in his ministry to God. And what was his character to be like? Well, we see here in verses 2 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 5 that he needed to have two things. And I hope you remember these. I hope you keep these in mind. These are really important. He needed to have two things. He needed to have gentleness. Gentleness. And he needed to have humility. In fact, I hope that we'll stress this so much in the weeks to come that when you think about selecting men for leadership, these are the two words that will come to your mind. Gentleness and humility. By the way, these marked our Lord's ministry, did they not? And they should mark our ministry as well. We see the necessity of this first character trait, gentleness, here in verse 2. Notice what the writer says. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. This is an important fact. I want to press it just for a moment. It's important because the last thing that God's people need, the last thing that the service of God needs is a man who is incapable of expressing 
gentleness and compassion towards those who are downcast and discouraged and disadvantaged. The last thing that the church of God needs is a man who is overly harsh with those who are acting out of ignorance. And there are many who act out of ignorance. They know not what they do. And they do it to their own harm. No church, no church leadership needs a man who's overly harsh with those who are acting out of ignorance or with those who need firm but ever so gentle correction. I think the reason for that is because a man who lacks gentleness is a man who needs comfort himself. A man who lacks gentleness is a man whose own soul is troubled. We often lack gentleness towards others because we have turmoil in our own life. We're dealing with issues in our own situation that should not be hindering us from effectively ministering to others. A man who lacks genuine gentleness is a man who lacks the spiritual sensitivity that is needed to graciously guide troubled souls back to the fold of God. And of course, when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ as our high priest, we think of him in this manner, right? As a gentle man, I am weak and lowly. I am gentle, the Lord Jesus Christ said to those who sought after him. We need to think of our leaders in this same way as those who are gentle with sinners, as those who are compassionate with the wayward, as those who guide them gently back to a place of spiritual rest and peace. For the high priest could not be effective in meeting the spiritual needs of the people if he was not himself a truly gentle man. And of course, the same is true, brethren, when it comes to those who serve in the church of Jesus Christ today. We don't often think about this. This is why I'm stressing it so much. We think of gifts and talents and speaking ability. We think of intellect. We think of knowledge. But how often do we think of this character trait called gentleness? Gentleness. What do you need from me as a pastor? Do you need me to know all of the Bible from beginning to end? Certainly you want me to have a good knowledge of it. Do you want me to have spectacular gifts that impress you every Lord's Day? Well, you're going to be disappointed there. No, you need me to be gentle. You need me to be a gentle man when it comes to dealing with your soul. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. I want you to just fix your mind on this word gentleness for a few minutes. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, man of God here is a designation for a minister, an elder, a man in the church. Flee from these things, all the things that cause men to stumble. Flee from these things. Pursue instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and what? 
gentleness. Gentleness. And with regard to how a leader in the church should minister to others, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. Listen again to these words. He says, For the Lord's servant, again, a designation for a minister, a man of God, an elder in the church, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that perhaps God may grant these same opponents repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore, as we consider men within our own congregation who have leadership potential, let us ask, are they gentle in the way that they deal with God's people? Are they gentle? For if they are not gentle, they are no more suited to serve in the church today than a harsh and insensitive high priest would have been in the days of Old Testament Israel. And if you're a man who aspires to an office within the church today, you need to ask yourself, am I gentle? And you might ask yourself, does it begin in the home where it should? Am I gentle with my wife? Am I gentle with my family? Am I gentle when they do things out of ignorance? When they repeatedly do things that they should not do, that disappoint me? When they have needs, am I sensitive? Am I gentle to them? Then in terms of character, not only was there a requirement that the high priest be gentle, capable of dealing gently with the ignorant and the wayward, but there was also a requirement that the high priest be humble. Be humble. In fact, it is his humility that enables him, by the grace of God, to be a gentle servant. Because humility really precedes gentleness in many respects. For verse 2 states here that he is gentle with others because he knows that he himself is beset by weaknesses. And so rather than thinking too much about himself, which would have led him to judge others harshly, a high priest needed to have a realistic and humble view of his own weaknesses, a recognition of his own sinfulness as well. And what would his humility, if he had genuine humility, lead him to do? It would lead him to do two things, according to verse 3 and 4. Notice this. It would lead him to be cautious about his own sins. He'd be mindful of the fact that he is a sinner, that he could easily trip and stumble, that he could fall to pride as well, that he needed to be alert to that and on guard about that, and to make sure that he was also seeking God's forgiveness himself rather than focusing exclusively on the sins of others. For we read here in verse 3, notice this, that because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. That's an expression of humility. And so a true high priest was quick to acknowledge his own need for God's forgiveness, as he was to emphasize the people's needs. He was not always going around pointing out what was in his brother's eye, but he was aware of what was in his own eye. 
He was aware of his own need for forgiveness, his own need to seek God's forgiveness on a daily basis. In this sense, a true high priest was one who led the people by example. He led by example in this regard, in terms of being gentle and humble. And of course, as we're considering men as possible leaders and elders here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we need to look for men who have this same kind of spiritual humility. Do we have them? That will be the question for all of us. Do we have men who have this kind of spiritual humility, who have the willingness to acknowledge their own sinfulness, the willingness to ensure that they are confessing their sins along with the sins of the people? And then not only is this humility expressed by his caution and his concern for his own sins, but it is also seen in his reluctance to receive any honor for himself. His reluctance to receive any honor for himself except that which is rightly bestowed upon his office. For we read here in verse 4, notice what verse 4 says, Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4 that the true high priest is not one who takes honor for himself or in other words he is not one who covets and craves a position of honor so that he can boast in himself but only when he is called by God as Aaron was and so when it comes to upholding the honor of his office the humble high priest will gladly do it for his office sake but he doesn't do it for his own sake He doesn't do it for his own vanity. He doesn't do it to feel good about himself or to ensure that other people feel good about him. He does it for the glory of God. This is what we need to be looking for as well. Does he seek honor for himself or honor for Christ? Is he preoccupied with getting all the attention Or does he desire that all the attention go to Jesus Christ? Does he understand that there is honor in his office and he's willing to guard and defend that honor, to live according to that honor as Aaron was, but he's not given to pride. For when it comes to seeking honor for himself, the true high priest would take none. For he knew within his own heart that he was nothing apart from the grace of God, nor could he fulfill his role and his calling in the church apart from God's grace and strength. And needless to say, this is the kind of humility that was needed in the Old Testament priesthood, and it is needed in God's church today. For while there is no need for a priestly line today, such as existed and functioned in the Old Testament, we still need men who have a similar calling and men who have the same sterling character. Again, brethren, you may be wondering this morning why I'm speaking about leadership and why I'm speaking about these issues of calling and character. Trust me, they relate directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And having this background, this foundation established, we can go into the remaining verses of these first ten verses and see how Jesus Christ met these requirements perfectly. But this is, as I said, a 
providential opportunity for me to talk about these principles in general, especially as it points to the need for godly men and godly leaders within the church. And since we are in the process of evaluating men for leadership, I want to confront you as a congregation with your duty to know how to recognize them. And I want to confront the men who are involved in this leadership assessment process to evaluate themselves in light of these requirements and ask, am I such a man? Would I have been, if I was in that line in the Old Testament, a good high priest among the people of God in the Old Testament? If not, then what makes me think that I would be a good leader in the church of Jesus Christ today? The parallels are astounding. They need to be considered and prayerfully thought about. May God be pleased to raise up such men here in our church. And if such men are here in our congregation, may we have the grace to see them to encourage them and to work with them and to choose and appoint them when the time is right. When the time is right. And I trust the time will be soon. And may all of our thoughts be directed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect fulfillment of all that we've been considering this morning. I hope that we'll be able to consider again with reference more directly to Jesus Christ these truths next Sunday, and in doing so, may God receive all the glory. For I believe that God is doing great things in his church, and I believe that God has chosen and will appoint men, even within this congregation, to serve as godly leaders, godly elders, and deacons for his glory. Let us pray for that day. Can we do that together? Can we pray for that day? That God would begin to prepare men and begin to prepare us for that time when we can rejoice in the provision of God and know that we have gentle and humble men who love our souls, who love the Lord Jesus Christ, and who desire to lead us by example. May God grant us that for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word today, and we would ask now that you bless what we've heard. This is an unusual message, Father. I've taken the liberty to use a text that would normally be a preparatory for the information that comes in verses 5 through 10. But I felt and sensed your leading that this would be a great opportunity to talk about the need for men to be called and to have character within our church as well. And I pray that you will bless my weak and imperfect endeavor this morning to communicate these things to your people. And may you give us hearts that are receptive to hear. May you move upon us to consider these things seriously that good things will unfold in the days ahead for this church. So bless us now as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.